Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station. My name's Andy and I'll be with you for the next hour. Coming to you this week from Wiradjuri country in western New South Wales. I've come down here to see my family, but as ever, dutifully uh, bringing you the cutting edge of a radical thought or something like that anyway. Um, today on the show, we're going to be talking to Sam Rogavane, who is head of the strategic department at the think tank, the Lowy Institute. He also used to work in uh, Australian kind of foreign intelligence networks. But the reason we're talking to him is he's just written a book called The Echidna Strategy, which is uh, quite a novel idea that says that maybe Australia's defence strategy would be best suited around just trying to defend the Australian landmass rather than being a part of US um, imperial forces in our region. He doesn't go quite as far as I personally would go. Um, as you'll hear in the course of the interview, he's not quite as critical of US foreign policy or US influence on uh, Australian foreign policy as I and some of my companions in the um, anti-war movement would be. But it certainly is interesting to hear him as a mainstream voice, you know, with a mouthpiece at a, a very large think tank who's a part of kind of the defence community talking about these ideas which I think a lot of us would agree with, really, that if we're going to have a military, that it should be set up, you know, with the interests of how do we defend ourselves in a worst possible scenario rather than how do we fit into U.S. interests, um, about the primacy of diplomacy in keeping us safe and about being realistic about how much of a target Australia really is if we're not hosting U.S. bases that are attacking somebody else. Um, and so all... All these very worthwhile things, and I don't mind talking to people who uh, disagree with me on some things, and as uh, Sam Rogavane does. Uh, it's also timely, I think, playing it this week. I did this interview a few weeks ago, but of course, the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has been in the US uh, somewhat embarrassingly groveling to his US counterpart, Joe Biden, 
Uh, it's always awkward to see, and so we have some frank discussions here with Sam about uh, the U.S. empire and how worthwhile it is for Australia. We cover plenty of ground in this chat, so let's get into it. Sam Rogovin, I'm Director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute and author of The Echidna Strategy. And today we're going to talk about your new book, The Echidna Strategy. I guess to start off with, can you give us a bit of an overview of the book's thesis? Yeah, look, the, the book is really built on uh, a premise uh, that questions something that we really take for granted in Australia, which is that when it comes to our security, we can always rely on the United States to back us up. And so the first couple of chapters in the book are really describing a world in which that isn't the case and uh, what our region looks like when that's no longer the case. And the reason I think that we ought to be questioning that assumption about American, uh, America's strategic leadership in this region is that the United States has never come up against anything quite as big as China before. And I think we have good reason to question whether the United States really has the motivation, uh, the resolve to resist China's uh, obvious uh, ambitions to become the leading strategic and military power in this region. Uh, and the reason I think we need to question that is because even though China is by far the biggest such challenge that the US has ever faced, in fact much bigger than the Soviet Union ever was, uh, nevertheless China cannot threaten America's core security interests. The United States is an incredibly secure country. It's separated from China by a vast ocean. Uh, it has a huge economy and will do for the indefinite future. It has the world's largest and most capable military and it has thousands of nuclear weapons. China can't threaten that. China can't threaten America. And so when the Americans say, well, America can't be secure unless Asia is secure, I think we do need to question that. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the Americans themselves may no longer believe this because despite the fact that China's been on this massive uh, modernization drive over the last 30 years to really transform its military, uh, the United States hasn't actually responded to that very much. Um, there's some there's some things happening around the margins in recent years, including actually uh, that the United States is developing more capabilities to uh, to use force from Australian soil. Uh, but despite that, the actual the sheer weight of American military power really hasn't changed that much since the end of the Cold War. And that I think is the strongest evidence we have that the United States may not be as committed as as we think. Uh, to defending its position in Asia. And the problem that raises for Australia is that at the moment we're building a defence force that is really built on the premise that the United States will be there for us in the long term and will be a reliable and a predictable uh, ally for us. Uh, but what I argue in the book is that we can't take that for granted and therefore we have to develop a more independent capability. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to be neutral or uh, that we're going to end the alliance with the United States by no means. Uh, but it does mean that we need to develop more independent capabilities within the alliance network. And the second half of the book is all about what that looks like. Uh, so I argue actually that, that Australia's single biggest defence asset is distance. We're a long way away from China. Beijing's closer to Berlin than it is to Sydney. Uh, and that at the, we, we should be exploiting that distance in our defence policy and at the moment we're effectively compressing it. 
when you consider AUKUS and the deal to buy nuclear-powered submarines from the US and the UK, that's really a project that's all about effectively compressing the distance between us and China. I mean, that's what nuclear-powered submarines are good for. They allow us to operate thousands of kilometres to our north and, and effectively they're designed to hem the Chinese Navy in along its coastline and even to fire missiles onto the Chinese mainland. I don't think we need to do anything as provocative as that. Uh, we can defend ourselves much closer to, to our own shores. And the reason the echidna metaphor is so useful is that, you know, the echidna is very well armoured, uh, but it's also unthreatening. And unless its, uh, its predators, its adversaries come very close to it, uh, they, they, uh, you know, they will, they won't be harmed by the echidna. And I think uh, actually Australia can take a, a somewhat similar path. We should exploit the distance that separates us from China. If China ever wants to, in the unlikely event that China ever wants to do Australia harm, I say let them come to us rather than us going to them. So part of the thing that you recommend here is a change in the Australian Defence Forces, like weapons arsenal, to remove some of those long strike range weapons and instead um, limit the army to shorter range weapons. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we should we should keep. Uh, this is all relative, right? So I'm I'm all in favour of having a uh, an Australian Defence Force that can defend uh, the northern. Uh, and, and northeastern, well, and northwestern to uh, uh, maritime and air approaches to Australia, and that does require weapons of many, many hundreds of kilometres of range. Uh, in fact, even into the thousands. But what we don't need is weapons that can operate, as I said, uh, around the coastline of, of China, trying to hem the Chinese navy in along its coastline, uh, and we certainly don't need weapons that can fire. Uh, that, that, that can land blows on the Chinese mainland, which I think is what we are currently doing. Um, the the nuclear-powered submarines that we're proposing to buy will have Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles, which are expressly designed to hit land targets thousands of kilometres away. I think that's unnecessarily provocative for Australia. It's certainly a useful capability to have if we're designing a force that is that is effectively, uh, you know, an adjunct to the American Pacific Fleet. But if we want to defend ourselves independently, then no, I think that's the wrong capability. Uh, presumably, this would also um, change Australia's defence expenditure as well, or weapons expenditure. Um, I assume that the long-range missiles and things like that are a lot more expensive than it, and that potentially there's resources that can be diverted into other things um, if we were to change our arsenal in that way. Yeah, so... Uh, the, the argument in the book is that I don't think there is any need for Australia to radically increase its defence spending. In fact, we may not need to increase it at all, but we do need to spend money very, very differently. So the, the, one of the risks of the nuclear submarine program is that it becomes so costly that it effectively eats up the, the Navy's entire budget. Uh, and keep in mind, you know, for every nuclear-powered submarine you could buy, uh, you could get three or four... Uh, non-nuclear powered submarines they are that much cheaper uh, and there's an awful lot else that we could be investing in that uh, 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 that, that, that we are currently misallocating so for instance uh, we're spending an awful lot of money on large surface vessels um, uh, destroyers and uh, uh, amphibious ships 
which are designed to move troops around by sea. Um, and in, in a war against even a moderately capable opponent, those kind of vessels are proving to be incredibly vulnerable. Uh, when you look at Ukraine, for instance, uh, the, the, the Russians have found that their large surface ships have been, uh, uh, have been destroyed by Ukrainian anti-ship weapons. Uh, and in fact, you, know, you could probably date it to at least the 1980s, if not before, uh, multiple small conflicts in which um, surface ships uh, have become you know, increasingly vulnerable to modern anti-ship missiles. The, the, the Falklands War of 1982 is an outstanding example. Uh, and the Ukraine war illustrates this point again, you know, the, the, the side at the moment, the, the side that doesn't have a navy is winning the naval war because it has very good anti-ship weapons, but it doesn't have any ships of its own to, uh, to target. Um, so there's real lessons in that for Australia. The future is not in large surface ships, it is in uh, aircraft, small submarines and uh, lots and lots of missiles and that's I think uh, what we should be focusing on. And then there's the army. I mean at the moment the army is a strange kind of hodgepodge of capabilities I would argue. Um, so we're for instance investing now in um, in a couple of squadrons of uh, attack helicopters, heavy attack helicopters that were, you know, originally designed to operate in in Europe uh, in a in a war between the Soviet Union and uh, NATO, um, and I, you know, there's long range artillery, for instance. So we're we're building an army that's designed to fight a land war against. A, uh, a very capable opponent, sort of like a mini version of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. But you know, the chances of Australia ever fighting a war like that, I think, are minuscule. So it, it doesn't strike me as uh, a really sensible area for uh, for spending money for Australia. So, so as I say, you know, the, uh, I don't think the spending necessarily needs to increase, but we certainly need to spend our money differently. So one of the other arguments that you make is that there's a, a real need to build strong allyships with the countries in our immediate region. Uh, yeah, look, I think what I said earlier is that Australia's single biggest defence asset is distance uh, and that we ought to be trying to exploit that distance rather than overcoming it. Uh, but part of exploiting that distance also means protecting it. So what we want to avoid is a situation where the countries nearest to us are uh, you know, so friendly towards China that they would consider hosting military bases there. So that means essentially the Pacific Islands countries uh, and Indonesia. And so what I recommend in the book is that we ought to be focusing our foreign policy on, on those two areas uh, rather than, you know, for instance, we've got a major diplomatic initiative now with uh, the Quad, which is a four-way four four arrangement with India, Japan and the United States. Um, which is getting a lot of diplomatic energy now. Well, I would much prefer that energy and those resources to be brought closer to home. And one of the things I recommend in the book, for instance, is that we should be, over the long term, trying to establish an alliance-like relationship with Indonesia. We'll never call it an alliance because the Indonesians are sort of skittish about that. They're, uh, they're traditionally very... Uh, uh, resistant to the idea of allying with another country, and I, I assume particularly with Western countries, they'd be, they'd find that very difficult politically. Uh, but nevertheless, I think an alliance-like relationship, uh, which is just dedicated to the proposition that 
uh, maritime Southeast Asia should never be dominated by China. I think that's an, uh, that's an objective that uh, our two countries share in common. I think uh, a, re a region like that would be very bad news for Australian interests and for Indonesian interests. And so it's something that we can come together on. Um, and then in the Pacific Islands region, yeah, look, there, there were reports a few years ago, uh, and I think credible reports, that China had ambitions, had approached uh, Vanuatu, had approached PNG, uh, with the idea of potentially hosting Chinese military forces, uh, and with the long-term possibility of, uh, uh, you know, a serious Chinese military base. That's something we do need to guard against in Australia. I think that would, if there were several Chinese military bases in the Pacific Islands region, uh, then that would be a serious uh, risk to Australian security. We want to avoid that. And the way to avoid that, actually, is, I think, again, largely a diplomatic effort rather than, any, other than a military effort or anything else. And what I propose in the book is that basically Australia needs to, you know, maintain the the very active uh, diplomatic presence that we already have in the Pacific Islands region and be ready to escalate it if we have to, so that Australia remains the, the favoured partner of Pacific Island countries. And ultimately, over the long term, uh, I think Australia should try to work towards a kind of Pacific Union, which is you know, roughly similar to the European Union, where we bring the Pacific Island states together with us, with us and with New Zealand into a kind of uh, economic union uh, where it's much easier to move people and move goods uh, across borders which ties those countries together in a similar way that the uh, European Union does. So the European Union was effectively a, a, an economic and political response to a security problem. And I think that's, that's exactly what I would hope for in this Pacific Union idea. So we don't use military means to solve a strategic problem, we use uh, political and economic means to do so. I guess in talking about all of this, one of the things that comes to mind is that if we're in some ways talking about a kind of um, exit strategy from a, a US alliance dominated idea about defence, uh, how willing would the US be for Australia to make these kind of decisions? Yeah, well, I don't think Australia needs to leave the alliance. In fact, I'd be against that if uh, th those who propose doing that now, I think that's... Uh, that's not a good idea for Australia's security. But what I argue in the book actually is that Australia's not going to leave the alliance. The alliance is slowly leaving us. Um, so, and what I mean by that is that, to, to go back to my earlier answer, the credibility of America's uh, security guarantees to Australia and its other allies is going to erode. So that doesn't mean that the alliance itself will disappear in form. So we'll still have, I, I think indefinitely, we will have, you know, the intelligence sharing. Uh, we will have, you know, regular meetings between leaders, you know, arms sales and all the rest of it. Uh, but what I think will slowly disappear over time is the sense of safety, the sense of reassurance that we get from the American alliance because we will simply stop believing that the Americans are will be prepared to make major sacrifices on our behalf. So there won't be like a, you know, a major withdrawal with flag lowering ceremonies and all the rest of it. I think the, the, those parts of the alliance will all survive, but what will slowly erode over time is that feeling that we get that the Americans will as I say, be prepared to make major sacrifices on our behalf. The one exception to that, I think, is that um, 
the possibility that the United States, let's say I'm wrong uh, about American resolve in this region. Let's say the Americans are every bit as uh, determined as they say they are to resist the rise of Chinese power and that, for instance, they'll be willing to defend Taiwan and go to war with China to defend Taiwan. If that ever happens, then I think Australia should be prepared to abrogate the alliance uh, because that, that is a war that is far more dangerous to us than, uh, than if China ever actually over, uh, took over Taiwan. Uh, China taking Taiwan would be terrible news, but a war between the United States and China would be far, far worse. So I think in those extreme circumstances, Australia should be prepared to say no to the US. Uh, and if that means, if we say no to them, uh, that the Americans say to us, okay, well, then the alliance is over, then I think we should be prepared to contemplate that. And in fact, what the book argues is that we can defend ourselves anyway. We don't necessarily need uh, those close ties in order to defend ourselves. Yeah, I guess it's a question of whether Australia could um, extricate itself from the US alliance if it was a war like that, especially with uh, such strategic importance of US bases at Pine Gap and at Darwin. And I guess that's the interesting thing about your whole strategy is that you're talking about reducing long-range weapons, where, but those um, stations are very key to the US long-range capability. Would we need to do something about those bases? Yeah, presumably, in the event that the alliance was ever ended, and again, I would stress that seems to me very unlikely, uh, but if, in the event that there was ever some kind of formal end to uh, the Australia-US alliance, then I'm guessing those facilities would be dismantled and the forces withdrawn. Um, it's worth saying, actually, that uh, you know what, what I'm... Uh, proposing about the long-term trajectory of the alliance, a lot of the evidence, current evidence actually goes directly against that. So the, the alliance is tighter than it's ever been. Uh, Australia is drawing ever closer to the US alliance. And actually, over the last two years, we've seen announcements that are really unprecedented. So the United States is now going to have uh, a, a rotational bomber presence in northern Australia. We're building new facilities at RAAF Tyndall Air Base so that we can support... Uh, that air base can support American bomber operations. And we're also building something called Submarine Rotational Force West, which means that uh, by starting in 2027, the US will be able to have nuclear-powered submarines coming through HMA Stirling in Western Australia, and they'll be replenished there and they'll be rearmed there. And so in both of those cases, for the first time since the Second World War, the Americans would be forming operational wartime missions. If there was a war, then the Americans would be performing wartime missions from Australian soil. And in turn, that means that those facilities would be targets. If the war was against China, then China would try to hit them. Uh, yeah, I've, I guess that's one of the things to bring up those announcements that you've just mentioned, those changes, and also AUKUS, of course, the uh, technology sharing arrangement has been big news. Um, all this does seem to suggest that we are getting closer bound to the US and its military objectives rather than what you are proposing. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, the, the one caveat I'd place on that, well, I, I've already mentioned one, which is that uh, overall US military presence in Asia has not 
increased over the last 30 years. The United States is distributing its forces more now throughout the region and the two basing arrangements, the two rotational arrangements that I just referred to in Australia, I think are a part of that. It's the US uh, moving pieces around the chessboard rather than adding more pieces. Um, the other thing I'd say is that if the United States really is committed to uh, fighting to maintaining its position as the leading power in Asia and, and you know, resisting China's rise and, if necessary, fighting China, then Australia is a strange place to do it from. Um, you know, they've already got bases that are much closer to China in Guam, in Japan. They now have places, uh, ba new facilities in the Philippines that have opened up. You know, Australia's a long way away. So, um, for instance, those those bombers that are going to be operating out of RWF Tyndall will have very very long missions. Uh, it, it's not a terribly efficient way to uh, to fight a war from that kind of a distance. So I, I think the signals are really ambiguous at the moment about what the United States ultimately wants to do in the region and whether it's truly committed to uh, defending its position against China's challenge. Now. You are in some ways in Australia's defence intelligence community, which means that your book actually has generated quite a bit of comment amongst um, that sort of milieu. How have the ideas been taken? Look, the reviews have been largely positive up to now. I'm still waiting for uh, some more critical reviews to emerge. Um, I think probably the point on which I've gotten most resistance or at least questioning well, a couple of points one is that a lot of people are wondering whether I'm overstating the point that I've been making to you about American resolve uh, a lot of people believe that American resolve is simply much uh, much greater than I have uh, than I have argued and really the final chapter of the book is designed to tackle that very concern. So um, I admit that actually that, that possibility that the Americans are much more determined to maintain their position in Asia, that could be right and I could be wrong about that point. But the argument in the final chapter of the book is that actually that's not good news for Australia. If the United States really is much more committed than I think, then actually we're, we're on a much more uh, likely trajectory towards war between the US and China than we would be if the United States staged a you know slow and steady retreat. Um, a world in which the United States retreats from Asia is not necessarily a great one for Australia and it presents more challenges than it would if the US was the uncontested regional leader. Well, that's not the world we're in though. Um, we don't have that choice anymore. So I think if the choice is between uh, fighting alongside the US for it to, to maintain its leadership or a region in which China is a much bigger presence, then I think we've got a better shot of living peacefully and freely in that second scenario than we do in the first. Uh, the second point that there's been some pushback is on the question of Indonesia. So I described a kind of alliance-like relationship that I would like Australia to forge with Indonesia. A lot of people have said, well, that's that's fanciful. That's simply not going to happen. And I do make an allowance for that in the book. Uh, but I agree, it's, it's a far-off ambition at the moment, and Indonesia is simply a long way away from uh, agreeing uh, f f uh, to that kind of a partnership. Indonesia really needs to transform its, its own uh, strategic personality, if we can put it that way. It's long been committed to non-alignment, but that's a very much a, a Cold War mentality. 
uh, and is really not committed to being a, a balancer against China. Uh, it's still very much hedging against Chinese power. But, you know, what I hope for is really that um, at a certain point, the Indonesians are simply going to change their minds and be forced to change their minds because China's interests will will butt up against Indonesia's interests far more strongly to the point where Indonesia will simply have to make a choice. And at that point, Australia needs to be ready. We need to hope that the and convince the Indonesians to choose uh, to choose the course that we would prefer for them rather than one that is uh, is much more um, accommodating towards China. I think it's safe to say that the mainstream uh, media voices and also the intelligence community, you know, think tanks like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, they're, they're not sharing the same ideas as you. In fact, some of them, are, you know, towards the other end of the spectrum. What do you think generates this kind of dialogue in virtually all the mainstream voices? Look, I think it's firstly supported by uh, a decades-long bipartisan consensus in Australia uh, on the value of the alliance. In fact, so deep is that attachment to the alliance in Australian politics that both of our two major parties claim that the alliance is their doing. So, the, and, and they both have a case. So, the you know the Labor Party during the war um, moved Australia's primary uh, strategic allegiance from the UK to the US. And then, of course, post-war, uh, it was the Menzies government that uh, inaugurated ANZUS. So, you know, they both have a claim to the truth there. Um, and in fact, I think it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that the US alliance is in the DNA of both parties. Um, the Liberal Party in particular, which was founded as, uh, as an anti-communist party, and as I say, ANZUS was, was consecrated under Menzies. But the Labor Party too, the Labor Party was more ambivalent during the Cold War. But it's worth remembering that you know, Labor didn't really have a sustained period of government during the Cold War until it resolved its relationship to uh, communism. So it became, you know, an avowedly anti-communist movement, although, you know, the Labor Party split over the communist question for like a decade and a half. Uh, and it also became much more pro-American. So that, that was under the Hawke government. So when that happened, Labor got a long period of office. But before that point, um, Labor never got that uh, long period in office during the Cold War. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's become very deeply ingrained in uh, the Labor mentality, not to show any kind of divergence from uh, mainstream opinion on the alliance. Uh, so the party political consensus on the alliance plays a huge role here. It seems to me, my, my rule of thumb here is that on any big national political question, uh, until the two parties disagree on it, you don't really have a national debate. So we're having a national debate on The Voice, for instance, right now, but we're not having one on uh, on Australian defence policy, even though we've had this, you know, this massive change uh, under the guise of AUKUS. Uh, and that's because the two parties are basically aligned on the AUKUS question. Experts like me can diverge, and you know, there can be some debate in the in the media, as there as there is. Uh, and among specialists, but we don't really have a national debate until the two parties disagree. What about the influence of, um, say, weapons corporations in Australia's defence and intelligence community? Would they have something to say about this kind of 
um, withdrawal or these kind of changes? And do they have an influence now in the way that strategy is talked about? Uh, yes, they have an influence. I, I, I'm not a, I don't claim a lot of expertise on this question, but I, I must say that the idea that Australia could ever uh, transform its defence and its foreign policy to the extent that we wouldn't be spending roughly what we spend now on defence. I mean, I can't see a future like that. So, so it seems to me that uh, you know the interests of the um, uh, of the big uh, arms manufacturers are pretty much guaranteed, uh, no matter what. Uh, that doesn't strike me as being you know, a major influence on the tone of the debate. Well, I think many Australians, and polls consistently sort of show this, that actually Australians would like to see something like an echidna strategy, you know, something that can defend Australia's borders but isn't involved in fighting overseas wars. But like we've just been exploring, we're not very close to that. What steps do you think need to happen to realistically get from where we are now to that kind of position? Well, I guess the first thing to say, actually, is that, it, it, that, is, that the opinion polling conducted by the Lowy Institute uh, suggests that Australians are, uh, first of all, very much committed to the US alliance. I mean, we've been polling for almost 20 years now, and that's that's a, that's a question we ask every year, and the, the results are invariably, you know, very solid support for the US alliance. It dips a bit when there are presidents in office that we don't like very much, like George W. Bush or Donald Trump, but overwhelmingly Australians support the US alliance. And in fact, the poll we conducted this year also showed um, reasonable support for the, uh, for the AUKUS arrangement. Um, so it's just it's not clear that Australians necessarily want to take a radically different approach to defence policy. So, look, I, I guess one thing to answer your question directly, one, one thing that would need to change is that, and, and we're probably heading in this direction, is that the influence of the two major parties needs to be diluted a bit more. Um, you know, I spoke earlier in my previous answer about the influence that the two major parties have. We are, though, seeing the slow erosion of their um, of the duopoly in the House of Representatives federally. Uh, we saw in the last election the large crossbench that developed with the teals rising. Uh, I, I don't think they are as culturally committed to the alliance uh, as as the two major parties are, and as culturally uh, committed to AUKUS as the two major parties are. Uh, not, not that they're radicals, but certainly, I think, more open to questioning uh, the, uh, the AUKUS arrangement. Um, and, and I, I mean, the trends in Australian uh, voting are, are pretty clear now. The, the two major parties are both in kind of long-term decline in terms of their share of the primary vote. Uh, and that's why we see a larger crossbench, and that's why I think in future we'll see, you know, probably for the indefinite future, we'll see either governments either with very small majorities or we'll see minority government. And, uh, in Germany, for instance, uh, they've had uh, foreign ministers who were from minor parties, such as the Greens. So something like that is not um, inconceivable in Australia. I guess my final question is about, yeah, the way debate is framed and what we can do about it, is that there's certainly this kind of defence intelligentsia that dominates discussion of Australia's defence weapons expenditure, you know, military strategy and things like that. 
Um, what can the ordinary Australian civilian, how can they influence the kind of discussions that we're having? Well, I'm not sure the dominance that you describe is quite that. Uh, I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm hardly a voice in the dark myself. I work at Australia's most uh, prominent and influential think tanks. Uh, and uh, I've had a book published, you know, that that goes against the uh, the grain of um, the prevailing wisdom on Australian defence and security. Um, Hugh White, who's a very senior and uh, you know accomplished defence commentator, takes a sim- very similar view to mine. In fact, I've been heavily influenced by his work. So there is there is a debate in Australia, and it's not. I don't feel like in any way like I've been silenced or. Uh, um, that that I can't speak my mind. In fact, quite the opposite. So uh, it's open to er- it's open to me. It's open to everyone in the public to join that debate. Um, it's slow going because the, you know the 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 two party uh, the duopoly that I mentioned. Um, but also important things are always hard to achieve. So it it should be uh, it should be difficult. And you know the the the. The, the alliance has worked extremely well for Australia in the past. The argument that I'm making is really that circumstances have changed enough to make us question whether the alliance will work quite as well for us in the future. But it's not an accident that the weight of opinion would be uh, on the other side because that arrangement has worked very well for Australia. So it's it's difficult for a reason. And so really there's no there's no substitute for simply joining in the debate and trying to persuade people. All right, thanks very much, Sam. Do you want to give a final plug for the book? Uh, the book is called The Echidna Strategy, Australia's Search for Power and Peace. It's available in all good bookshops, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, thanks very much for having a chat with us. Thanks so much, Andy. I appreciate it. That is Sam Rogavane there. Hope you have enjoyed the chat with him on the show today. I definitely enjoyed um, myself talking to him. And like I've said a couple of times, we don't quite share exactly the same views and many people who um, I have on the paradigm shift are much more stridently uh, anti-war, anti-military expenditure and anti-US alliance than Sam is. But I do think it's good to get a diversity of views and also to talk to people that are somehow in the system and and thinking differently. And I think um, we'll keep doing it our way trying to resist militarism our way but i'm grateful for some sensible voices that we can kind of point to that are within the establishment that are saying well isn't defense meant to be about actually defending our country and what happens if the u.s's interests are not the same as australia's it turns out um and those kind of things that's the kind of debates that we want to be having not just amongst ourselves in like alternative media but in the mainstream and so good to to chat to sam rogavane and i think really australia needs to have a a real reckoning with the u.s alliance what it does to this country what it has done over the last few decades where australia's taken part in some truly disastrous wars and we're talking disastrous for um, the places where we fought them, Af- Afghanistan, right, where we had two decades of military occupation only to have the Taliban still ruling that country, Iraq, the country's in a total mess, um, and but also disasters for Australia, because we sh- should remember that Australia's most elite soldiers 
have committed war crimes over there, right? And that's what's become of the Australian military. You know, these people that had so much money and effort have gone into training. This is what we've turned them into. And um, I think, yeah, it's a, a long, long challenge for Australia to really deal with that and talk about what would it look like to be um, really for our military strategy to be embodying what we kind of want to bring to the world, what our gift to the world wants to be. But anyway, that's my belief. Sam Rogovane's belief is that uh, the US will not necessarily defend Australia if it comes to a conflict in the Pacific, if they decide it's not worth their while and we need to change our defence thinking. And, well, I don't mind hearing that as well because... And there's plenty of voices in the mainstream saying that Australia should be all the way with the USA um, or that Australia should do anything we can to fight a war with China, it seems like. That's what they're kind of talking about, as well as other wars with US allies like is currently going on in um, Gaza and Israel as well. So we need a, a few different voices to challenge what we're hearing most of the time. So that's what we try to bring you on the Paradigm Shift and here at 4ZZZ and Sam Rogavane is one of them. There's plenty of work to do for those of us in the anti-war movement at the moment in this country where, of course, you've got the AUKUS deal, a crazy amount of kind of expenditure and embedding Australia into the US military plans, as well as other US um, deals like we've talked about on the show today with B-52 bombers at Tyndall and nuclear subs at the Stirling Base in Western Australia. And then, of course, there's the prosecution of Australian war whistleblowers, David McBride and Julian Assange and then there's the real wars that are being fought currently and potentially fought and we're fortunate that we're a long way removed from the realities of living in conflict here in Australia but unfortunately a lot of people through no fault of their own are in the middle of conflicts and of course Australia and our alliance partner the u.s are involved somehow in so many of these conflicts so those of us who want a peaceful world will have to keep working as hard as all the people whose interests it serves to have a violent world so let's keep going that's all we have time for for another week on the paradigm shift see you next week